It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of the 909 Podcast is brought to you once again by One Sonic. One Sonic are the only Irish designer of personal audio tech, and they got a deal for 909 listeners. One Sonic are launching their Black Friday sale on Friday, 19th of November, with discounts off their entire range of earbuds, earphones, and headphones. So, whether you're looking for your Christmas presents early or you're looking to get new earbuds for yourself, no shade, now is the time. Check out their shop on onesonic.com for the Black Friday sale. Hello, welcome to the Nile and Nine podcast with me, Andrea Cleary. On my own this week, Nile is away, so it's just us girls as we dive into the theories, the receipts, the scarves, and maybe even the music surrounding Taylor Swift's latest release, Red, Taylor's version. This is the second album from Swift to be re-recorded in its entirety. Earlier this year, she released Fearless, Taylor's version, and this is all due to a quite complicated legal issue regarding the rights to her previous recordings. If you don't know the story around all this, here it is in a very brief nutshell. All of this information has been taken from the YouTube channel Legal Legal, who made an excellent video about it. Go there if you want to find out more, because it really is a good video. So basically, Taylor Swift lost control of her music copyrights to the first six albums that she made. She released those first six records under the label Big Machine, which is the label that she first signed with. And that was bought by a guy called Scooter Braun. And when that contract was up, Taylor opted not to re-sign the contract. And the label, as you can imagine, weren't happy with that. They refused to allow her to use her songs in a Netflix documentary about her life, as well as banning her from performing the songs on television. So... Swift then tried to buy her masters from Big Machine, but Scooter Braun refused to sell them, as well as requesting that she sign an NDA as part of the negotiations. Taylor Swift said no. 
17 months later, Braun sold these master tapes to a private investment fund, which is actually becoming more and more common. Um, these investment funds are kind of noticing how lucrative it is to own the masters to a lot of kind of big artists catalogs. You know, you can look at the the value of the Beatles uh, when when Michael Jackson bought the rights to that compared to now. Um, even an artist like Prince had had problems with this, which is part of the reason why he changed his name to a symbol back a million years ago. But back to Taylor Swift. These master tapes were sold to this private investment fund and negotiations just never really got off the ground in terms of her being able to use her music, in terms of her being able to buy back her music. And also mostly because of these NDA requests, as well as an additional request that she doesn't re-record copycat versions of her songs. Something that she said at the time in a statement, she is, quote, both legally allowed and looking forward to doing. Swift then began re-recording the songs. And the reason why she's allowed to re-record those songs is because there's two different licensing issues going on here. There is the composition license, which is the melody and the lyrics, the the song itself as it exists on sheet music. And that always belonged to Swift. And the copyright for those kinds of the copyright and those composition licensing issues usually belongs to the songwriter. But there is also the cop- the copyright of the sound recording, which is a separate legal entity, and that belonged to her label. So in order to circumvent the copyright sound recording stuff, all she had to do was re-record the composition. And if she wanted to change it as much as she wanted to, she could do that. If she wanted to get the same musicians in, if she wanted to perform it in the same way, she could do that too. What she did here with Red was basically do a straight re-record of the album and then she also decided to re-record some of the from the vault songs that were written at the time but were never really released now it wouldn't really be fair for me to speak any more about this album mostly because I wasn't there the first time around I came to Taylor Swift quite late as I have done with a lot of pop songs and pop stars um so I spoke to two Taylor Swift superfans who were there from the beginning. And first up is Amelia Cullen, who is the host of the Lately podcast, which you can get on all good podcasting platforms. She is a long, long time Swifty. Um, and she's going to share her thoughts on the album, on Jake Gyllenhaal, on scarves, on feminism, on neoliberalism. It was a great chat. So I'm going to hand it over to me and Amelia. The first question, Amelia, I have for you is how are your emotions as a Swifty? I feel like they've calmed. Um, mm. I think what's so interesting about this is like it transports you back to where you were when it came mm. out. And I was 22. Ah, so you were 22 when 22 no, came sorry, out. sorry, that's a lie. I wasn't 22. I was 20 
But mm. I feel like the album stayed around for those two years because that was back when she was only releasing music every two years. So those two years, 20 to 22, this was like my soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And I was going through a breakup and I was just like, this album speaks to me. Mm. And I think that it just puts you back there and you feel all of those emotions and then a whole host of new ones. Like one of the first things I texted my friend was like listening to stay, stay, stay and realizing that I'm still not in a stable relationship. (laughs) Really deep. And when when this album was released the first time around, do you remember there being like, were you part of what we are kind of now calling a standum or what was the what was the experience of being a Taylor Swift fan like the first time around compared to this time? So I've never been like super collective. Like I've loved her and had a couple of friends who really enjoyed it. And I think we were the perfect age. So I think at that time it was like our getting ready music, our like girly drinks music. And it was just something about like feeling so understood and that it was like upbeat, but then there was the sad songs and it just kind of filled the hundreds of emotions that you were feeling every hour of the day when you're in your young like when you're that young trying to figure out who you are and it just kind of spoke to you and then when I moved to the UK I did my friend group there everyone loved Taylor Swift and that was the first time of really feeling like okay cool there's a lot of people Hmm. it's not just like my friends would always kind of like oh it's kind of weird that you're so into Taylor Swift where like going there and finding a group of people being like see these are some of the coolest girls I know this like badass bunch of girls from New Zealand and then being like, and they also love Taylor Swift. So mm. so there wasn't as much of a kind of a, a visceral standum, I suppose. And I mean, I know you're not you're not involved with the with the stands at the moment, but how do you think being a Taylor Swift fan has kind of changed from then to now? Because now there's a kind of a and I'm aware that maybe maybe they'll listen to this and I I really want them to understand that I just that I love them and I think they're great and I and I love Taylor but there is a kind of association particularly with Taylor Swift stands um with being very militant online um and being quite gatekeepy and I'm wondering as somebody who is in their late 20s um how how do you feel as a as a Taylor Swift fan going from the early days to now and seeing that shift in the fandom? I think it's kind of something that I just see is happening and I'm putting over there. I don't mm. engage with it. And I think it's something really interesting when you look into fandom that, you know, multiple fandoms you're seeing this happen. It's not just here, like we saw it with One Directioners. And it is really like aggressive. Once again, I love her, so please don't come for me. But mm. I think it's very it's very hard to kind of understand as someone who's just never, I like respect her so much as an artist. Her music is always related to me. I, you know, have judged the men as much as anyone, Mm -hmm. but I think like the way that they come for journalists and come for people like that, I just think isn't something that she condones herself. And I think that's what I always find interesting when you look at like that element of fandom that like, it can reflect badly on the artist mm. because they get the push, they get a pushback, but yeah. they're not in any way directing that kind of action or that kind of kind of vitriol. So it's kind mm. of. And Taylor's always been a little bit um, 
so she's always taken a bit of a backseat when it comes to, I mean, it feels strange to say now when it comes to her own narrative, because that's not true at all. But as in, she didn't speak out about politics until um, the 2016 election, for example. Um, and she didn't really recognize her position within kind of gay fan bases until you know the music video with the um hate doesn't make you any less gay what was that lyric the something shame never made anybody less gay in you need to calm down maybe um you can tell I'm coming at this as an outsider but (laughs) as, as somebody who only really loves 1989 but she has always kind of taken a backseat when it comes to that. Has she ever, I don't think she's ever actually addressed the standum before or am I wrong no. there? No, I don't think she has. And I think that it comes a lot from obviously like her country background and how country stars are polished and trained. And that's why she has been slow to comment all the, on all those things because it's all a part of her like evolution from like good girl of country to like, mm independent female musician and Mm. all those things are wrapped up in that and I don't she only ever speaks positively about her fans and I think it's something that she kind of is a bit out of sight out of mind on because she does have such a good relationship with her fans like Mm. you know listening parties and all of those and you know those fans who she engaged with I don't think she's ever seen those characteristics up front Mm. yeah that's probably right because I doubt that she's manning her own social media accounts you know uh you mentioned the men uh, a moment ago this is something that I'm not familiar with at all and I feel a bit ignorant of what I've seen is Jake Gyllenhaal um <laughs> I've seen his oh, name so- around a little bit about about this album so I can see you're doing you're doing stretches you're gearing up you're ready to tell me all well, about this no tell me what's going on with the men on on this album then and now I suppose Well, I think what's going on, what I think is so interesting about what's going on then and now is she's getting a lot of pushback that I've seen in recent days of people being like, oh, why are you dragging him through the mud? But she's never, now she's made some very opaque statements Mm. that kind of push people in that direction. But like, she's never outright said it was about him. So she's not directing anything at anybody. And this is Mm. like, this is what part of that Stan thing, right? The, yeah, the, and the, it's... The codes and the, the hidden messages. Exactly. And she plays into that, yes, but that's because it's very commercially success, successful. And that, mm. you know, why I love Taylor Swift was because she was putting it all out there. And, like, obviously, the evolution of her so- songwriting has, like, developed and it's not all as clear-cut. And that's kind of why the Easter eggs and all that kind of stuff became more predominant but what I loved about her initially was like she was writing about her feelings exactly how they happened and in real time she was going Mm. through these relationships she was putting out the album she was going through these relationships Mm. she was putting out the album and that's what happens I think when you're a singer-songwriter and you're that young when you're starting writing at 16 17 she was writing this album 19 20 21 and so then I think it was a lot of speculation and it did serve her career very well because like mm. with Speak Now and you know that w- was mainly about John Mayer and Taylor Lautner and that kind of got a bit of an attention and then this you know with Connor Kennedy 
Jake Gyllenhaal and Harry Styles it did boost her kind of like media persona but for good and bad she got a lot of pushback and a lot of you know subtle and not so subtle misogynistic comments Hmm. Um, yeah there was a lot of um, kind of music journalists male music journalists who would be kind of making little snipey comments about her not being able to I mean, Adele kind of had a, a similar thing happen as well, um, although the narrative is slightly different uh, as we kind of roll up to her release this Friday. Um, but the idea that women or women like Taylor and Adele can't write music unless they've had their heart broken, um, as if men or, you know, even male country music stars, male pop stars aren't doing the exact same thing, um, or in the case of people like Harry Styles when they were dating having their songs written for them so yeah that, that was always a very interesting aspect to the kind of the media's relationship between Taylor Swift certainly in the early days I do think it's shifted now to them seeing her as this sort of robotic you know uh, capital queen and the, the kind of capitalistic girl boss thing which we might get onto in a minute but but yeah so she was so she was right writing these songs about these men at this time what is the scarf for for our for our listeners um where where does the scarf come in on the album and what so, makes people think it belongs or that Jake Gyllenhaal has a scarf that belongs to Taylor Swift so there's a couple of interesting things here because the t- they had a very short-lived romance and it was you know there's a, a a few kind of like paparazzi images that plot out the timeline and that coincide with the lyrics in the song and then obviously really coincide with the short film and the 10 minute version and mm. some people think that the scarf is a this metaphor. is all too well the uh which you can view on youtube if you look for all too well short film taylor's version 10 minute version <laughs> it's called all it's, of those things it's the yeah. best way to spend 10 minutes um, <laughs> but <laughs> But some people believe that it's a metaphor for her virginity. But there's also paparazzi photos of her and Jake Gyllenhaal out and she's wearing a scarf. And then a couple of days later, he is out wearing that scarf. Oh my God. So then the song comes out and the lyrics in it. So obviously everyone went crazy. And I So think, did this song come out at the time? So how the did that work? That's so important to note about All Too Well is it was never a single. It, okay. It was just like one of the quite far down tracks, but it summed up that relationship that so mm. many people are in. The kind of, we didn't even have, you know, gaslighting wasn't a word that was thrown around in our conversations like it was, but that's what it signified that kind of, you know, knowing about a relationship but feeling kind of just tricked constantly and just the short-livedness of it and it kind of just really connected with a lot of people and the melody is really beautiful and emotional it's a it's a very good song I heard it for the first time when I watched the the 10 minute version on YouTube and I actually kept feeling like the the, I I switched it off after a few minutes because I kept getting a bit distracted from the song by the short film which is excellent um but when I listened to the song then I I was really like wow this is this it's a beautiful melody it's a beautiful song and so the the fans loved that song and she said Mm. she said in interviews that it went from being a song that she would have to take a break to cry after to being Mm. one of her favorites because everyone was got getting behind it and everyone would sing it back and I'm not sure of the timeline but it was pretty clear 
based on the timeline and the age difference that it was about Jake Gyllenhaal. And the 10-minute mm-hmm. version, which is obviously quite self-indulgent. Yes. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> should, we should state that. It's, and it's self-indulgent. As, as is the, the music video. Twen- as is the two-hour album. Like, the whole thing yes. is <laughs> indulgence. But, like, it's for the audience who soaked it all up. And mm. that's what the 10-minute version is. And it adds so much more context it makes the whole thing seem so much more heartbreaking mm. and the video essentially in a way kind of spells out exactly what you'd envisioned it in your head and you know yeah. dylan o'brien plays who doesn't look like dissimilar to jake gyllenhaal no. in that he's like a handsome white man i suppose but you know exactly he's clearly so, playing jake gyllenhaal in this in this thing yeah so he plays him, is the credit given, and, and Sadie Sink plays her. And the entire video just ties together all these little snippets and hints in other songs as well. So The Moment I Knew, which is about, you know, her 21st birthday party and he didn't turn up. Sitting mm. by the water. Like, there's just all these little hints and tricks. But the thing is, like, she's never going to outright say it. No. And well, Taylor Swift doesn't outright say anything. Exactly. And yeah. so it's just really been like a cultural moment of people just jumping onto it now. And and back to the toxic kind of standum of people like jumping on Jake Gyllenhaal, which I don't think is necessary. I hmm. think that like, you know, it represents just a relationship with a man, especially an older man, and just... Taylor was 20 and he was 27 I believe is that true yeah. or 29 one or the other 29 I think it was nearly 10 years because yeah. one of the new lyrics is um oh I, I won't get it right exactly but it's something along the lines of I was never good at telling jokes but here's the punchline I'll be getting older while your lovers stay the same age and naturally mm. someone on TikTok made a chart that mm. laid it out that that's exactly right that like mm. There's been a essentially a bouncing ten to fifteen year age group gap mm. between most of his relationships. So the Leonardo DiCaprio issue of exactly. refusing to date a woman over twenty five, despite him being, you know, in his forties or fifties or whatever he is these days. Um, but yeah, I think that people have really latched on to the Jake Gyllenhaal, and I do feel bad for him because I think it is because people love the song so much. Mm. where I think like you know Connor Kennedy features as well and there's you know kind of Holy Ground which is supposed to also be about Joe Jonas because it's about looking back on a relationship with like distance and I do Mm. think the thing about Taylor is is that like they don't necessarily have issues Mm. with it like Jake has never spoken against uh, against it and again it's all kind of rumor but there's lots of rumors that like you know he still listens to Taylor Swift and like she said in an interview that like whoever one of the songs was about like told her that it was like looking through a photo album now I think Mm. that could either be Harry Styles or him just based on my own parasocial relationships and who I've decided they are but she said (laughs) that was so much nicer than like getting a horrible email which was definitely John Mayer me mm. slandering men left right and center but, but look i mean i think <laughs> like we don't know these men but of no. those three men john mayer is totally the guy who's gonna give the 
the annoying email that excuse me how dare you especially because he's such a he's such a songwriter you know exactly. where you know Jake's not at all and Harry is you know he is a songwriter but he also gets it you know and I think as well that the thing is that like all of the albums and all of the songs yes they are about specific people but the nature of songwriting is they're all amalgamations from all of those relationships and all of those mm. feelings added together so you can't Mm. tarnish one person in particular I do really enjoy as well that um she has Phoebe Bridgers on the album because I think it's really yes, interesting let's talk about the Phoebe Bridgers song because that is um for my money the best of the new tracks as beautiful I would agree I think it's stunning and I think it's really interesting and to have for the content of the song to be about a newcomer coming over and fearing that they'll take your place for her to then have someone who is younger than her and kind of show look mm -hmm. we can both coexist and also someone who is who has publicly had a relationship with a much older man that had a profound impact on her that we all mm -hmm. know and don't know about. about yeah so I think I really enjoyed that element of it and it's just a great kind of like sad girl bop Mm, it is. It is. It's a beautiful song. On the sort of mythology of Taylor Swift and how we, even the fact that we we know to an extent who these songs are about, what do you think it is that Taylor's doing in order to kind of pepper her music and I think particularly lately her kind of visual element to her songs with these hints and also like how 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 does that work in terms of perhaps take taking you out of the song a little bit and causing you to direct feelings and anger towards an actual human man instead of maybe the platonic ex-boyfriend that exists in all of our heads who we're still angry with but we never actually dated do you know yeah I think that part of it does come down to obviously a real commercialization mm. because you know there's a lot more merch it's a lot more specific there's a lot more to engage with and I do think that you can look at it through that lens but I also think that it comes down to the fan base and what they're willing to devour in the time that they're willing to put in and I so think I devour think is a very good word to use because I think if Taylor puts a drop of blood in the water then they are on it I think she learned a lot from you know folklore and evermore and the way that they they were released and the reaction mm. and reception to them and mm. I think that you know at the end of the day like these the re-releases are about regaining control and I think that then all of these other elements are kind of just playing to that and also the culture we live in like video is so important mm video and snippets and all of that stuff so I think that she has a very smart team around her and I think she's very clever herself mm. um I I feel a, a little bit when when it comes to the kind of peppering things with um with little hints and hidden messages and decoding I think that's kind of been part of Taylor since reputation I think reputation was that at, at its most at reputation for me didn't work 
because it was too much of that. And I don't think the songs were good enough to kind of justify the winking and the nodding. And then with Lover, she seemed to pair that completely back. And that was an album that was just about the songs, I suppose. Uh, And it wasn't really about pointing fingers anywhere in particular. That album didn't work because there wasn't enough of the winking and the nodding in it. And then Folklore and Evermore came out. And I felt like she hit on a real sweet spot there where the the hints and the winks and the hidden messages were all self-contained within the albums. Like it wasn't really pointing to anything outside of those records. The songs are pointing to each other and, oh, is there a trilogy? And is is this a character that's that's running through the whole album? And I really think she hit she hit on that. And I'm wondering now with Red, is it a is is she like placing herself back as an older person now, more learned, happy in a in a good relationship, a good stable relationship, and she's placing herself back in in the time when she was writing this? Is she leaning a bit too heavily on what worked? or what she felt worked with reputation and drumming up gossip, I suppose. Or is it a a, a kind of a, a goodbye to that era? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not suggesting goodbye. one or the other, but you no, know. No, I would know. I think it's a very interesting point, but I do think that this album, this and 1989, I think are the albums that had, until obviously Evermore and Folklore, that had the real wide appeal that really showed, you know, this was like the real getting her foot in her evolution as a musician and kind of she ditched out a bit with star. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I think, you know, reputation definitely was a dip in this. And I think that then she's come back around with the last two albums of understanding songwriting and making music and the polish and refining it. And I think that's what you see on this album. You know, there's very few, you know, musical changes to it. Mm. It is just, you know, a more polished version with essentially a second album attached. Yeah. Um, And I think that she just knows that like she can have fun with it, how much it means to people, how much people have already deep dived into it. And it's kind of like, why not run with it? I think Mm. also some of the like, Easter eggs that people are finding are just like far-fetched mm. but I think to a degree people are just having fun with it yeah I, I, I think it's quite difficult to read things into a Taylor Swift album that she doesn't want you to read into them um later in the episode we'll be hearing from Kelly Doherty who's gonna uh, explain to me what Gaylor is Gaylor oh, have you heard about th- that Yes, I su- I'm yeah. excited to listen. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that that is the theory that Taylor, that Taylor Swift is actually a queer woman and has been all along. So do stay tuned to hear from Kelly Doherty about that because we're all excited. <laughs> all the gals are excited for Taylor Swift to be gay. Um, that's, that's all I want, really. Um, and so when it comes to the actual re-recordings of the the songs that were already released what what kind of differences are you noticing i know there there weren't very many 
in the last release but there was I mean I remember just a couple of things in Love Story especially like jumping out at me I listened to 22 just before we started recording to see if I could hear anything except for maybe just her voice is better than ever um but I think that Red was already a more mature Taylor Swift than Fearless was at that time so I don't know how much of a difference there is what did did you notice any differences or did you notice more of a polish? I just noticed more of a polish, definitely refined. Mm. I think there's obviously some things are a little louder, some things are a little quieter, but overall it just feels cleaner, if that makes sense. Obviously, mm. now she changed Girl at Home, which I actually really liked the original version, but a lot of people didn't. So it's mm. a lot more like pop synthy, which you know, I think it's fine, but I did like how it was before. But that's the mm. only like dramatic change, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, everything else is just, I don't know if it's just, I think also on some of the other ones, there's maybe slightly more like treacherous. I think there's like a, a few more strings. It just feels a little bit more heavy. Maybe that's mm. just me projecting my own emotional relationship <laughs> to that song onto it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I because I I I think that with Fearless, what I got from the album overall was a, a much better sense of warmth and kind of a much better sense of communication between the musicians. Like everything was being hit right away, um, which I thought was was really great to kind of hear her. And I also really liked hearing her recording those songs as a grown woman um like love love story is such a ridiculous song like it is it, i absolutely adore it but what a incredibly melodramatic song for a grown woman to sing um and i i do think that she had a lot of fun doing that and i i kind of felt that way about 22 i think something that's so clever about 22 is the lyrics in the chorus kind of allow you and this didn't occur to me until now it those lyrics allow you to dance to that song and to celebrate that song no matter what your age is because it's dancing like we're 22. It's not that we are 22, it's like we're 22. And I I just kind of feel like there's such mastery in that. Like she's writing songs that are about very specific things, whether it's men or ages or locations or whatever it is. But she's always making sure to have the mass appeal there to make sure that everyone can bop to the songs. You know? Oh yeah, she's an incredibly clever songwriter. I also yeah. do think that in all of the songs that have en any little hints of where she speaks or even some of them afterwards where she's like, mm. that was so fun. <laughs> like there's a little almost like a wink and a nudge of like the way she says it's a little just a bit more kind of like, ooh, fun. You know, yeah. where it yeah. had been a genuine like, oh, that was so fun. The first the, time. There's, there's the funny bit in 22 when she says, um, who's Taylor Swift anyway? Ew. Which at the time obviously meant, you know, who's Taylor Swift anyway? She's not a pop star yet. She's just some country music girl. But the way she delivers it now is just so outrageous because who doesn't know who Taylor Swift is? Nobody doesn't know who Taylor Swift is. So I, I do think that she's having fun with this um, I also think that she's taking it very seriously and I think that she should take it very seriously because this is after all kind of born out of a legal battle um, and the idea that she has to re-record these things because they were they, her songs were taken away from her and that 
that sucks. Um, I wanted to ask you about Taylor Swift's feminism. You and I have had conversations about feminism over drinks and I wanted to bring that vibe to the podcast. Um, where, where are you with Taylor Swift right now as a feminist, as, as this fuck the patriarchy keychain idea? Well, that's a great question. I think <laughs> I'm at, so a large part of my dissertation that I did for my master's was about pop culture feminism. And mm. so trying I'm very happy to, I asked you this question then. Trying to kind of negotiate and understand the value of all types of feminism. And when feminism is so tightly wrapped around capitalism, what benefit can it have? Mm. And, you know, there's always, you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, which is true. So it's kind of like, is it tarred with the same brush? There's no ethical feminism under capitalism because capitalism mm. is a tool of the patriarchy. So while on one hand, I agree with that. On another hand, I think that we live in a world where when you are in particularly, if you are particularly online, if you were in a particular social group, social standing, echo chamber for a better word you hmm. can think that feminism is fixed i'd love to be mm-hmm. in that echo chamber personally you th- or you think that we have nowhere to go there's so many different levels of what you think is needed for feminism can be there but mm-hmm. i think that there's a huge amount of people who think we still think we don't need feminism in the first place hmm. or think that we've already achieved it Mm. and don't connect you know there's so many people that don't connect problems in their everyday lives with the greater issues that are creating them you know like so many people who don't know what neoliberalism is so still live by its principles even if it's crippling their everyday experience and Mm. I think that because of that Whatever form of supporting female empowerment that she gives can only have good. Mm. Would I like some more nuanced lessons of feminism to come from her? Sure, I'd love for everyone to give more nuanced lessons in feminism. Mm. But she's not going to do that. As I said earlier, it's it's very much comes down to her her upbringing her training, living in Nashville, like she's unpicking all of those elements and uncovering who she is socially and politically and sharing what she's willing to of that. And I Mm. think that there's an element of having to like embrace people where they're at. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I think so. Because I think something very important with Taylor Swift is that the the venue and the world in which she performs her feminism um, or or is a feminist is is her working world, which is the entertainment industry, which is a, um, a, a an extremely patriarchal um, zone to be working in. So the things that she can do through her work have an inherently capitalistic edge. I think with Taylor, it is a particularly capitalistic edge I mean I I, while on the one hand I am very very much supportive of what she's doing in terms of re-recording these albums um from a 
feminist perspective in that I want her to own her work and I want her to earn money from her work. But on the other hand, there is this gnawing idea in the back of my mind, which is, don't you have enough money? <laughs> um, and it's not, it's not that I think it's okay for men to own her things um her the the rights to her recordings but i just also don't believe maybe that re-recording these albums is the grand feminist statement that she thinks it is and i think that's okay but because i don't know if she's but maybe maybe it's some of the language around it that she has used that makes me uncomfortable with this being a feminist statement yeah, I think that so much of it comes down to her personal perception and I kind of ag I agree with everything you said and I think on one hand it's kind of like, okay, well, yes, it is important to show a message that when a man takes something from a woman when, mm. you know, shady deals go on in the background, which happens yeah. to women everywhere, every yeah. day in the gender pay gap where people are unaware how much less they're being paid than their male mm. counterparts. And I should say too that this happens to artists of color as well. It's the reason why Prince had to change uh, his name to a symbol for a little while there um, was the same thing as this. Exactly. And I think that so that overall message is positive. Would I love to, I don't know, like see her tax returns or see, you know, <laughs> the Taylor Swift foundation with the profits of these albums? Mm. Oh, nothing would please me more. Maybe we live in hope when we watch this space, mm. but I also, but also it does, I, you know, she obviously has a lot of money, clearly, but I'd also be intrigued to see based on how easy it was for that situation to unfold, to know how much she was getting in mm. the original deal, because I mm. think it is obviously much more than you and I will ever earn. <laughs> Yeah, but I well, don't I know the, if it's as much as we always think it is. Yeah, I think the problem with the original deal was that they wouldn't let her um, use her music because she had previously requested, after she finished her six albums, she requested to buy her masters from them and they wouldn't let her. And it seems, obviously we don't have the depositions or whatever, but it seems to be that they took um, issue with her wanting to end her record contract and wanting to buy back those masters and basically just banned her from um, I mean like that that documentary that she did she couldn't use her own music in it which is which is wild because all of that kind of legal stuff was going on so I do think I mean there's a bit in her what who is it that does it you know is it the New York Times or the those 21 questions with things that you see on YouTube and it's like they're following the person around the 90 questions with Vogue 90 questions with Vogue yeah in in her one of that um the guy behind the camera says what advice do you have to somebody who wants to be a musician and just like that and I know these things are probably rehearsed but like that she just says get a good lawyer and I think that for for the lack of the Taylor Swift Foundation which I do think would be a wonderful thing for her to kind of put this this kind of issue and everything that she's drawing attention to in the music industry I think that would be a wonderful thing for her to do um I do also think that she is changing this 
forever. Like the, the there's not going to be a record contract that's being signed um, from pop musicians from now on that isn't going to have some kind of Taylor Swift clause in it, which which I do think is amazing. And that's that's the feminist thing, I think. Do you know? Yeah, and I think it is amazing because I think if you talk to any like working musician or singer songwriter, like the the way that you know streaming and all of that stuff has destroyed their profits Mm. it can only work in their favor to have more control Mm. over their music yeah the the very interesting thing about the uh about taylor swift and streaming is that her music wasn't on streaming platforms for a really long time because of her ethical issues with spotify and then in pure taylor swift fashion she releases them all on the day that katy perry's album was being released and nobody listened to Katy Perry and everybody listened to Taylor Swift and it was Taylor Swift day and everyone was very happy. So I do think that she, she is kind of malleable in her morals from time to time. Is Taylor Swift a problematic fave? I think that's what I'm getting towards here. Because <laughs> I, I think, do love her and I root I, for her, but I find her endlessly frustrating. Yeah, I think sometimes she does. She does think sometimes that are things that you think, oh, I'd love to do that. But like, in the version that happens in your real life, you don't because it's not nice or mean. Mm, mm. And I think that, you know, once again, we don't know anything about her. And I honestly, I say this with truth. I would love to go on a night out with Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers, mm. Paul Maskell and me hitting a few pints. Great time. I don't mm-hmm. think I'd want, I just don't know if me and Taylor would vibe. Mm. But I think maybe the version of Taylor that never got famous. Exactly. Yeah, I just, I don't <laughs> think that, I just don't think she'd be sitting in the pub with us on Saturday. Mm. Yeah. Very different chats. to someone like Gaga. You know, yeah. Ta- Taylor is kind of more like a Beyonce. It's like, I I don't know what to say to you. I, I love you and I don't know how to talk to you. And also I think so much of it is not her fault because she is, was so young. Mm. when she became so famous yeah that her life and this is what I think as well that informs a lot of her action she lives in an environment and in a world that we do not know it is Mm. not she does not live in real life she obviously very much cultivates a privacy now with her relationship and I think she obviously has a huge level of normality in that but like anyone who exists on that level of fame your checks and balances and you know your feet the people providing your feedback are vastly different so Mm. your reactions and your behavior is vastly different Mm. yeah I'm just an apologist apologist (laughs) for the celebrities yeah no but I mean like like we said earlier there's there's a they they move and work in a realm that is both incredibly um, like politically and culturally and socially influential while also being completely, you know, um, void of context for, for those things. You know, like Taylor Swift can absolutely go to a women's march. I don't know if she did, but she can absolutely go to a women's march and sing a song there or, you know, tweet that she is in support of it. And that is the role that she is going to play in it. And that will have a huge, huge impact but when it comes to actually kind of engaging, I suppose it's just it's a completely different world um, with, with pop stars. And I, I think that that's why it's it's very 
it's very difficult to kind of get your head around the expectations that we have of them. But I think that those expectations, especially with Taylor Swift and especially with feminism, is because she is using it in her music and she is cultivating the um what was it sarah we, we uh amelia and i had uh drinks the other night the uh the girl boss funko pop <laughs> that sarah mentioned you know this this girl boss energy and this you know that is inherently tied up with the american dream i worked hard i called out the men in my life and a lot of times women don't have the opportunity to do that um and there probably like you said a real- lot there's probably a real essay in like Taylor Swift, the neoliberalist dream. And like, I just don't want to read it or I, write it because I'd be I, confronted. Yeah. I certainly don't want to write it. I 100% want to read it. Um, and good luck to anyone who gives it a go because it is tough out there to um, to criticize Taylor Swift. And just in case any people are listening who might take issue with what Amelia and I are saying uh, we're sorry and we do love Taylor and we love you stands. Let's just say that um, on on top of all of this. Um, Amelia, is there anything you'd like to add about your experience listening to Red over this past little while or anything about Taylor? Okay, well, there's actually one thing that came to mind, which I think is interesting to note, given the earlier conversation about the men who feature and you kind of like the how dare she drag this all up is that she Mm -hmm. has great relationships with a lot of her exes there is great footage of her and harry styles having a hug at the ground which i love which we love her and joe jonas she sent it like as she wrote in the lyrics you know she sent his baby a present sophie turney turner his wife was wearing all her merch like i feel like you know people are very okay with it they're Mm. all fine so, you know, yes, should we turn down the hate towards them for things they did 10 years ago, but also we don't know their relationships mm. anymore. Like I doubt her. And These people Jake are characters in a, yeah. in a film, you know, they're not to us. They're not real people. Um, And then for me personally, I just think that on a grander scheme, it's terrible that she's had to re-release all this music, but... I think it's brought a lot of nostalgia and joy and mm. just enjoyment to people's lives <clears throat> at a time when, you know, this pandemic is really dragging on and we needed it. And I, yeah. I um that old person on TikTok, TikTok, and that's what I, my For You page, which is usually a very different space, became quickly filled with, you know, people driving around screaming Taylor at the top of their lungs as I have been for the entire weekend people yeah, when I saw you you pulled up in your little car and this <laughs> this album was blaring out of your speakers so that was a that was a huge moment to just, just see think, you in, in your in your joy like that <laughs> exactly and and people you know so many people traveling you know especially in America like traveling across the country to have Taylor Swift weekends with their friends and people mm. going to listening parties and I just think it's just an unadulterated good time great listen if you haven't you're Mm -hmm. missing out and I think that you know great for her as well because of all of the criticism that she received when it first came out that it's kind of that concept that's so popular in pop culture now of like everyone's been sleeping on teenage girls like Mm. they are cultural tastemakers yeah and what they enjoy has value and I think it's great to see like that come back around 
And to see those girls grow up into women who maybe have, I mean, not that teenage girls don't have the language uh, with which to speak about pop music and pop culture, but to grow up into women who have the, maybe a better understanding of that language and, and how to communicate it to people and be like, no, this is actually important. And, and who, have, who have context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, they, and they've lived through it. Yeah. Well, Amelia, thank you so much. That was Thank lovely. you. This was an absolute joy. um you can listen to amelia's podcast lately on all good podcasting platforms uh if you enjoyed this chat i would recommend seeking out the chat with jen gannon uh about our internet boyfriends because one mr gyllenhaal makes a little cameo there and i wouldn't be surprised if amelia went back and edited that out but thank you amelia to drink tonight and I know it's sad but this is what I think about and I wake up in the middle of the night it's like I can feel time moving how can a person know everything at 18 but nothing at 22 and we still want me when I'm nothing new crying in my room when you can't blame it on my youth and roll your eyes with affection thanks so much to amelia for that chat you can listen to her podcast lately on all good podcasting platforms and i'm even on one of the episodes so you can go and find that as well in the nylon nine discord which you can get access to at um patreon.com forward slash neither nine i did it um kelly doherty who's a journalist and a musician was telling us all educating us all basically about taylor swift standom and all of the different theories and ideas that have kind of cropped up around this album which are really fascinating so if, if you haven't like dived in you might have seen things about a scarf about Jake Gyllenhaal about a keyring that says fuck the patriarchy and I was finding it hard to make head nor tails of this so I asked somebody who knew here's Kelly Doherty so for better or for worse um, I found myself deeply uh, inextricably linked with the world of Taylor Swift fan theories um, it's uh, an amazing extensive world um, where everything has a deeper meaning and nothing can be taken lightly. Um, so I guess kind of, I initially, I've been a Taylor Swift fan for a very long time since I was a kid. Um, I've never really been someone who's too into like the fan theory sides of things, just enjoyed music. But um, I think with Taylor Swift, it's kind of unavoidable once you get past a certain, certain point of enjoying her music. Um, if you consume any type of content about her on social media, you just end up falling into this kind of rabbit hole. So um yeah i have far too much information um that i can never use for anything uh of any particular use uh i suppose in terms of fan theories the ones that are kind of the most important right now in this red taylor's version era um would would generally be all the fan theories around uh who red is about and um 
all of the the different subsections of who uh, Red is about. So obviously the biggest theory is that it's about Jake getting hot, which I think is pretty much confirmed at this point. Um, and yeah, but then there's even more to focus on within that. So in the new version of uh, All Too Well, there's a reference to an actress comforting her after her breakup with Jake Gillinghall. And there's deliberation online at the moment as to whether that actress is Jennifer Aniston or Anne Hathaway. Um, and everyone has different arguments and receipts for who it may be. But it's kind of, I suppose, we've read at the moment that's the overwhelming thing is people just kind of coming through all the details and, and trying to piece together what they think the real life events um, are from the album. Um, I think something like that's probably like pretty natural to happen, particularly with someone like Taylor Swift, whose relationships have been so public. Um, and from the start of her career, even with tracks like Dear John, people knew they were about John Mayer and stuff. So um, I suppose that's kind of like the obvious top tier level of of hypothesizing around the albums. But it gets much, much deeper uh, than that. Um, I think the first big Taylor Swift fan theory that I ended up getting sucked into was the world of Gaylor. Um, so it's all of the fan theories as to whether or not Taylor Swift is, in fact, uh, a queer woman. Um, she has, in recent years, done an interview where she has said, I do not consider myself to be a part of the queer community, um, but that has not stopped fans. So um, I guess over the years, there's been rumours of her having relationships with Carly Kloss and Diana Agron, who are both good friends of hers or were a bit good friends of hers. And um, they kind of just spiraled. So I think there was like few pieces of uh, what would be considered evidence. There was like a, a photo, a few photos of them and, and kind of stuff like that. But um, online now there's extensive presentation, PowerPoint presentations about um, about the relationships and proving exactly why they are true. So there's like a, a mega presentation you can find online on Tumblr, of course. Uh, that's like over 100 slides giving all of the receipts as to why um, uh, Taylor was with both Diana and um, Carly. And then with pretty much every new album that Taylor Swift releases, uh, it's accompanied by a presentation from fans about uh, what pieces of the album, what references in the album are actually about Carly Kloss. Uh, so it's a, an extensive world. Um, I think I think it's interesting, I guess, with, with this fan theory, like... As a hardcore Taylor Swift fan and a gay woman, um, it's fun, I think. It's a fun fan theory to buy into. Um, I'm never really sure if anyone who actually says it necessarily believes it or or really, yeah, I I suppose it's kind of one of those things. I don't know if people actually believe it or not, but they have fun with it and... um, kind of finding those easter eggs and I think you know it's it's kind of one of those things that it's kind of the line in between like toxic fan culture of like maybe isn't the best thing to speculate on someone's sexuality who's an actual real life person um but I think particularly with like queer music fans um and and queer fans of pretty much any type of media it's it's part of tradition and history to speculate around um sexuality and and gender because we have been given so little material over the years to actually work with. Um, so people tend to take their own meanings. And, and I suppose with stuff like queer coding over the years, we queer fans have particularly been taught to like read into things because so often 
that's what you have to do or else you're never going to find yourself represented and stuff. So I think there's obviously there's negatives um, around speculating on people's sexuality, but I do think it's a fun section of fan theory um, that I always enjoy anyway. And I think, I suppose with Taylor Swift as well, um, I think with the Easter eggs and, and the fan theories, like it is something that she buys into and that she is very aware of. Um, she, like she said a lot in interviews, she's always left Easter eggs for her fans to try and read into. And there was an interview of her where she talked about how um, when she was younger, she used to like love reading the pamphlets with a, an album back to front to to read the lyrics and all that type of thing and how that's kind of fallen out of fashion in recent years with like the digitalization of music um, and how she's always left Easter eggs to try and make fans still engage with like the physical format and, and engage with albums in a way that they might not do anymore because of streaming um, platforms. So I think that there's a back and forth with it. I, I think all of the fans aren't kind of crazy coming up with the theories because she does constantly leave that information out there for people to to try and interpret um was and I think particularly with the gay theory I guess that's more of a fan base theory than easter eggs she's left but she definitely is also aware of that and like on the last album with the not on the last album on folklore she, she 100% knew that the controversy that was going to come out after she sang about um someone with female pronouns um she definitely knew how the fans would respond to that because she's a smart businesswoman so I think there's there's kind of a I think there's a back and forth of it I think it's it's all in good faith um in terms of fan theories that I think are a little bit crazy maybe it's just my um inability to understand numbers but a lot of the Swifties online the theories are like if you add up the number of letters in this word with a number that's in the background of this video, you will find that this album is coming out on this day or whatever. All of that type of stuff completely goes over my head. Um, so I do not understand it, where anyone comes up with any of that information, but it's fun. Um, and yeah, I think, I don't know, I think with fan theories, I think there's a wholesome element to it. I, I think a lot of it, obviously you're going to have people who take things overboard, but I think there's a kind of a wholesome um reason to be really invested in an artist and to just have fun with their music beyond just the music itself um it's it's fun to speculate and and to to put in that time with a release and i don't think there's really much harm that comes from it it's definitely i think one of the the less harmful elements of of fan bases um but yeah i think i think in terms of like some of the funnier uh, fan theories over the years um people pr saying that she was wearing like the princess diana like revenge dress um after releasing a certain track um which was something that she then had to be like no that i was just wearing a black dress but um yeah i think i think it's fun um i enjoy it i don't know i, I as someone who engages with all of these fan theories all the time i don't know if i necessarily believe any of the stuff that i'm drawing the lines between but i think it's fun to to mess about with and um, it definitely keeps me invested. Um, if you are like me and um, you're a big fan of TikTok and a big fan of Taylor Swift, um, you will find that 90% of your TikTok feed, particularly at the moment, is just Taylor Swift conspiracy theories and fan theories, um, which is stressful in, in, one, in one way because for the last week, my entire mind is just... Um, every single Taylor Swift song playing simultaneously because that's what happens every time I go on TikTok. Um, but it's fun. I think, you know, seeing it 
it's it, it it's got a sense of community around it and it's it's nice to know that so many people are invested in this kind of lighthearted thing um in the same way as you are and i i, I liken it to supporting a, a football team or a sports club it's it's just a really lighthearted thing to to be really invested in when so much sucks in the world so why not spend an afternoon um obsessing over how the lyrics in uh, folklore if you put them next to the lyrics of evermore you'll find that they match every single lyric um yeah but i enjoy it and i will continue to um overly scrutinize every single thing that taylor swift says um until i get bored of it so it's good fun thank you kelly you can listen to kelly's music um she makes music under the name gadget and the cloud and you can also read her in various places. Follow her on Twitter. Um, and thank you again to Amelia. That is our episode this week. It's been strange not having Niall, but it has been nice. It just being us girls. You can support the podcast and indeed the Niall and Nine site, which needs you now more than ever. Um, I don't think Niall would mind me saying. Um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Niall and Nine to support. And that gives you access to the aforementioned Discord, as well as playlists and just lovely things, little newsletters. Um, yeah, just nice stuff. Um, I've been Andrea Cleary. You can follow me at Andrea Cleary underscore on Twitter and Instagram. And I have my own podcast, which is in between seasons right now. It's called My Favorite Album with Andrea Cleary. And you can find that on most, if not all, of your streaming platforms. Season two is returning in the new year. Thanks for listening. Stay Swifty. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.